I'm Scott. I'm Jason. Welcome to Skipped On Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today's episode, we're going to focus on the Rage Against the Machine song called Snake Charmer from their 1996 album Evil Empire. Rage Against the Machine is a band that is super popular. Pretty much everybody has heard uh, at least the name before, and they probably know a couple of songs off the top of their head because they've reached that kind of like cultural notoriety. But really, I mean, they've if you go to their iTunes store, they have 98 songs, and that includes live tracks, remasters, you know, B-sides, soundtrack stuff, whatever. Really, like, this is a band that's really, really famous and really popular and only has a very small output of, of material. And and today's song, Snake Charmer, sits pretty, it sits in the middle of that list, but as, as Scott mentioned, you know, that's including demos, remastered tracks, and, and a whole bunch of stuff. So a lot of the, at least back end of the evil empire album seems to just not be very popular with rage fans or or just in general which i i thought was kind of interesting i mean this was this was the first album of theirs that i had so maybe i just got more familiar with it than than some of the other materials so it never seemed like much of an outlier to me i think until we started doing you know, talking about doing this episode and, and kind of listening a little bit closer and looking at things that you realize like, oh, Evil Empire kind of an interesting album for this band to make. Yeah, I mean, there's like I said, there's only three proper albums of, of full original material that the band and then you know, a, co- a covers album and then the a covers yeah, album. Yeah. yeah. So of those three, yeah, Evil Empire is definitely the outlier. The first and third records are pretty much they follow a general formula and they have like a. a uh, a similar kind of aesthetic to them, but Evil Empires is the outlier, and that's not saying much because I mean, obviously, there's only three, so it's like you know the middle child kind of thing <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, but it is interesting to listen to all three of them and realize just how different this album is. And uh, and this song that we're going to go over today, Snake Charmer, has a lot of other differences to it that kind of set it apart from the rest of the Rage Against the Machine canon. If you were to just you know listen to it, you'd be like, oh yeah, this sounds like a Rage song. It's loud, it's angry, and you know there's lots of energy and and anger and whatever but when you examine it it's it's a little bit different than what you might be expecting It's impossible to talk about Rage Against the Machine without bringing up probably the the biggest name in the band, which is Tom Morello. And Tom Morello is the guitarist of the band and probably the 
the creative force behind most of what they do. He's responsible for creating the really crazy, bizarre guitar effect sounds that you hear on Rage Against the Machine songs. He's, you know, the primary developer of the band. He pretty much got everybody together. So we're going to talk a little bit about Tom Morello first, and then we're going to get into how Rage Against the Machine, you know, got together. Tom Morello's family is pretty interesting. His father was the first Kenyan diplomat to the United Nations, which, you know, generally means that Tom Morello's family was not was not poor. Like, you know, he may not and, have been... And, and, and well connected to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, to you know, what, what's, <laughs> to, what's... To government and to, to people, yeah. you know, in, in power. So, so, you know, Tom Morello was... I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the episodes we talk about, you know, the original beginnings of band members, you usually talk about how they're raised in, you know, not so ideal circumstances and maybe have a rough family life or maybe don't have much money or whatever. That is not the case with Tom Morello. Tom Morello was born into a fairly, you know, well-to-do family. Uh, he ends up going to Harvard University, which is obviously, you know, one of the pres- most prestigious universities in the world, you know, generally has a has a pretty good thing going for him. But uh, his his father is a, a, a political diplomat. So that does give Tom Morello kind of the the uh, what we assume the the kind of like platform for all of his political standpoints and and how he's going to bring those politics into Rage Against the Machine later. And it's interesting for us for a time, he also worked for a senator in California that he sometimes cites as part of his like disillusion with American politics specifically. And yeah, I mean, you certainly hear that all the time in Rage Against the Machine. It's kind of one of the one of the trademark themes. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, so he graduates from Harvard and he decides he wants to start playing music. So he moves to Los Angeles and uh, plays in a couple bands, meets some people, does whatever, uh, struggles a bit as a starving artist. And then he starts this band called Lockup. And Lockup is, <laughs> when we listen to it, we, so neither Jason <laughs> or I had heard Lockup at, before we started doing research for this episode because it's just, you know, the band didn't really go anywhere. And when you think about Tom Morello, all you think about is Rage Against Machine or maybe Audio Slave and the other stuff that he's done. But you don't think about this band Lockup. So he looked it up a little bit. And then it's it's definitely, the first thing that Jason said is, this is an L.A. band. <laughs> it's totally true. Like, so, 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 the, so the album, the, the one album they came out with is called Something Bitchin' This Way Comes. <laughs> Which, which, which we—that is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. It's amazing to think of that. That the you know the guy who's going to start one of the most important politically charged, you know, just insanely out there and awesome bands of all time. His first record that he puts out on like a on a label is something bitchin' this way comes. And it's and it's this air metal sounding kind of L.A. band. Well, well hold on. And, we we, we yeah. found a track. So this this track is called Punch Drunk, and this is what we found from Lockup. So so check this out. So yeah, you can you can hear in Lockup. I mean, uh, we haven't we haven't played a Rage Against Machine song on the on the on the episode yet, but we'll get to that. But you you know, in that song, you can hear like you've got that 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 
that crunchy, you know, metal guitar. You've got some 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 cool solos got there. You've got that kind of like Led Zeppelin groove. You know, it's all there, but it's just got this like hair metal kind of sheen to it that, you know, sounds very dated and glossy and and you know, frankly kind of lame, but whatever. You know, this is his first We thing all start he, somewhere. We all start somewhere. So yeah, so so Tom Rello's in this band lock up and he does this thing and lock up doesn't last very long. It's like a, a year and a half, yeah, a year yeah, and yeah. change, whatever. And uh, then the band breaks up and, uh, you know, fortunate luck for Tom Morello because if he had continued with that, that probably wouldn't have gone so well for him. But anyway, he break, that band breaks up and then he starts looking to make a new group. And uh, he's listening to a lot of hip hop at the time and uh, sort of, you know, settled on the idea that he wanted to make a band that had like the rock sound that he was used to playing with this with this lockup band and, and, and the music that he was listening to when he was growing up and and mixing it with that hip hop sound that he was listening to a lot at this time when he was living in L.A. He meets the, the future band members of Rage Against the Machine while he's looking for these band members. So that ends up being Tim Comerford, who's the bass player, Brad Wilk, who's the drummer and Zach DeLaRoche who is the uh, lead vocalist. Because Tom Morello had some degree of success with Lockup, when Rage Against Machine first formulated, it was, it was you know, he used the contacts that he developed with Lockup and the business connections that he had made. And he got, you know, the demo given out to some labels and there was some profound label interest in the group right from the beginning. And uh, so there was a bunch of things that were thrown at them, a bunch of deals. They ended up signing with Epic Records, uh, primarily because Epic basically gave them creative control. They said, you can do whatever you want, whatever, you know, we're not going to try and limit your sound or limit what you say or do, uh, which, you know, for a band like Rage Against Machine is really important because if somebody comes in and says, you know, you can't say fuck or you can't say this about America, like obviously the band's not going to work. So when Epic was like, we're going to give you creative freedom, that was their primary uh, motivation for signing with them. So the band enters the studio with a producer named Garth Richardson and begins developing what will end up being their debut album, which is called Rage Against the Machine. The recording wasn't going so well. The band had, you know, some problems with the producer. The producer was trying to basically fix Rage Against the Machine sound to make it much more polished. I think, you know, from what Tom Morello had done with Lockup, I think they were looking to do something more raw. They wanted to sound like the band was in the room, just playing the songs and that's it. They didn't want to try and like go overboard with overdubs and do all this stuff. And uh, so uh, Tom Morello tells a story at one point where he, he actually caught the producer electronically moving Tom Morello's parts around to make them more locked in to like the tempo of the song. And Tom Morello like got really upset and they would fight and argue. Basically Tom Morello was like, it's supposed to be loose. It's supposed to be dirty. It's supposed to sound dangerous. Dangerous. And Garth Richardson did not agree. Garth, he was trying to make it sound nice. And, you know, anyone who listens to Rage Against the Machine now knows that like half the appeal of the band is how dirty and, and angry it sounds. So, uh, so yeah, the recordings didn't go so well, but, you know, it was still done and they released the record and it became a huge hit, mostly on the back of the single Killing in the Name, which most everybody has heard by now, you know, features one of the most famous refrains in rock and roll <laughs> history. So let's let's check that out.
The album is a huge success. There's, you know, other tracks on there that you probably might know. Bomb track, Bullet in the Head. This gets, you know, Rage Against the Machine quite noticed also for their album cover, which is a pretty famous image of a monk protesting the Vietnam War by setting himself on fire. That is the cover of the album. So it's a little um, salacious. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they, they're getting a lot of attention, not only, you know, the, the language and themes of the album, but also, you know, their choice of cover. So so all those things are are getting them pretty well noticed. Uh, and they start touring and they're wildly successful. They're playing tons of shows. In 93, they play with Lollapalooza. So they're pretty much consistently touring for the next few years. And it's not until uh, 1994 that they sit down, go into the studio and try to start recording a follow-up record. Unfortunately, those sessions didn't go so well. The band had a lot of infighting and a lot of disagreements about which direction the the new record should go. The sounds and and just just the overall like theme of the record was was not uh, agreed upon by the by the group. So they recorded uh, apparently they recorded at least the, the the bare bones of a full record in Atlanta in '94 and and then scrapped the whole thing. And they decided that it wasn't the direction they wanted to go in. No one's ever heard these tracks, and they've never really unearthed. We can assume, you know, that probably at least some of those tracks did end up on Evil Empire, but uh, it'd be interesting to see or hear what 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 that was. I I, I probably would would assume that it was more of the same, you know, like yeah. it was basically like they were like we're just going to repeat what we did before and and release a second record that kind of sounds like the first one and maybe that just didn't fly with the band members or some of the band members said it was going to be good and some of the members said it wouldn't and that that's what I assume probably happened. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the inner workings of, you yeah. know, who who, who decides what but i mean in 94 95 they're still playing shows and a couple of these tracks like kind of start to pop up so we're assuming at least the the ones that they felt good about are the ones that they you know turned around and were at least you know playing with live and kind of trying them out for audiences so after the uh the the failure of of developing that first second record they take a quick break and then they go back into the studio uh this time with a producer named brendan o'brien who is at this point probably one of the hottest producers of of that time uh he had just finished work with both the first and second Stone Temple Pilots records, which were humongous records with massive hits on it. We'll eventually do a Stone Temple Pilots episode. So we'll talk more about Brendan O'Brien and all that later. And then he'd also worked on both the second and third Pearl Jam records by this point, which were also huge. Uh, so Brendan O'Brien is like the producer in, of in the de, moment. Yeah, in demand for yeah, yeah, a, he's, a he's, rock band. He's the big guy. So Rage Against the Machine chooses to work with him. And uh, Brendan O'Brien clearly understood what to do with Rage Against the Machine, which is once again, just letting them play, just getting him into a studio, miking them up and hitting record. And when you listen to Evil Empire, it sounds dramatically different from the first record in that it's just so much more raw. There's so much more energy going on and it's so much more simple as a recording thing. You know, like there's not like tons of stuff going on. It's just like these things three guys playing their instruments and then Zach De La Rocha's vocals over top. Of and, and if you listen to the evil empire and then go back and listen to the first album, it's just crazy how clean and crisp, despite the band being like really raw and dirty. Yeah. Like it's just a great, 
sounding album. Yeah, like, I, 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 I mean, it's, it's as, hard to. <laughs> yeah, as a musician and as a guitar player and and a guy who's made some records in in, in the past, like I I still when I listen to Evil Empire, I'm like, this is what. I wish every rocks record sounded like, like this is like just the, the, the hugeness of the drums, the, the, the fat bass, like it's just, it's all perfect. It's like easily one of my favorite production records of all time. So yeah, so they go into the studio and they record this record and then they end up releasing their first single from the record, which is called bulls on parade. And, uh, most likely pretty much every rock fan has heard this song a million times. As one would expect, after the release of the record, they start doing tours to promote the album. And one of their first stops is to play a promotional performance on uh, Saturday Night Live, which uh, at, at, at that point, Saturday Night Live was in its heyday. I mean, this was this was big time. Like, I mean, you know, we're talking like Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, David Spade, like all the- Will big, Ferrell. Will like Ferrell, all, yeah, like yeah. all the, the big names are in. This is all when Saturday Night Live is like in its, you know, in its peak pretty much. And uh, so bands playing on Saturday Night Live, it was a big deal. Everyone would tune in and see like what they were playing or whatever. So, uh, so Rage Against Machine, they come in, they play, they, they, they're planning to play two songs, but unfortunately they only get to play one. And the reason was, was because producers shut off their, they, they, they basically cut them off primarily because the band came out with American flags draped over their equipment, but the American flags were upside down and they felt that this was going to be offensive and they felt that they were going to face problems and backlash or whatever. Which is interesting because the reason the, the the when you hang an American flag upside down, what the the actual like legal definition of that is that you are in a it's a sign of you being in distress or great danger. So it's like if you were to like be on a boat or whatever and have your American flag turned upside down, it was like a sign to everyone else that like you know there Some, was something's wrong. Something yeah. was wrong. Your your ship is not doing well. There's people sick on the ship. You've been you've been commandeered. Whatever. So it's like when the band hung the American flags upside down, they were basically saying like America's not really great right now. But, you know, all they see is American flags turned upside down and all they're going to think is like, you know, this band hates America, which they pretty much do. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the point being that they were taken off the air. And so this was like one of their first like huge controversies. There have been some littler stuff here and there, obviously the use of the, 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 the yeah, the self-immolating monk. The self-immolating and, monk yeah. So, so there are other things, but this yeah, is like, this is like yeah. peak. This is when it was like, you know, every Everyone found out that this Rage Against the Machine band was, you know, pretty dangerous and doing some 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 other stuff that maybe uh, maybe the you know the 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 mothers the, the or, man uh, won't like. Yeah, yeah, they may not they may not dig. During the promotional tour for Evil Empire, they also tried to do a double headlining tour with uh, the Wu Tang Clan, which is a huge you know popular uh, rap group. Also you know, pretty dangerous and pretty controversial in their, in their own way. So this double bill of Rage Against the Machine and Wu-Tang is like inviting, inviting all sorts of problems. And sure enough, like police end up shutting down concerts, you know, all over America before they even start. Like, it's not even like the bands show up and then the cops are like, you know, we got to, they just like are immediately like, no, just, just based on the songs and the, and the kind of messages (laughs) they're, they're just like, no, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that tour ends up being, uh, it makes a lot of headlines because everybody's like, oh my God, like this is the show to see 
of the year because who knows what's going to happen at this show. But unfortunately, a lot of the shows don't even get to happen because of all these controversial problems that they were having with the police. So after the band tours and they do this stuff and they get all of this controversy, they're, they're more popular than ever. They end up going back into the studio once again with Brendan O'Brien to produce their third record, which is called The Battle of Los Angeles. The first single from The Battle of Los Angeles is this track called Gorilla Radio. Radio ends up winning them a Grammy, which, you know, is kind of funny because when you think about Rage Against the Machine, you probably think that the, the last thing that they care about is winning Grammy awards. But sure enough, Gorilla Radio wins a Grammy. So that's, you know, notable thing for them. But uh, the album comes out on Election Day in 1999. The band actually plays on the streets of Manhattan for the late show with David Letterman. Uh, once again, you know, stirring up a little bit of controversy because they're playing this big, loud rock performance right in the middle of the street. And um, well, not in the middle of the street, but, you know, where the people are. Are and there's all sorts of you know it's it's a pretty it's a pretty impressive thing to see when you see Rage Against the Machine just like outside well, play, yeah. in the middle, <laughs> in the of, middle the of the streets <laughs> and it's just like you know doing their thing it's 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 pretty incredible so so that's how they uh, that they you know that's how they launched this Battle of Los Angeles record then continuing their kind of controversial streak. In January of 2000, they go to shoot a video for Sleep Now in the Fire with Michael Moore as the director of the video. They set up near uh, a statue next to the New York Stock Exchange. I think they had like a permit to like be at the statue, but you're not supposed to like be anywhere else. I guess you're not supposed to film anywhere in Wall Street like during the week. So any any films or television shows you see that have scenes that take place, they only allow shooting on the weekends, presumably because of how busy Wall Street is during the week and, and trading and all that. So they go there. They kind of start causing chaos because a whole bunch of people show up to see them recording. People get all nervous because of basically it's Rage Against the Machine and they're railing against capitalism and they're <laughs> at the epicenter at, at the, of at the capitalism. Of, yeah, at the center of <laughs> um, so, so things kind of start to go awry. You know, police get kind of nervous and they actually end up um, shutting the doors of the New York Stock Exchange for fear of that there might be a riot and someone might storm inside. Um, Michael Moore just told Rage Against the Machine, like, keep playing, just stay here, like, don't do anything, you know, let them. So eventually they get, you know, dragged off by by police and, and the whole thing gets shut down. They use, you know, all this footage in the video. So if you look up the Sleep Now on the Fire video, and it's a video that very much still resonates today about inequality in America. There's this kind of quirky who wants to be a millionaire game show where they take digs at, you know, the, the how, inequality how, of health insurance. Yeah, how little um, Americans how, know yeah, about, yeah. like, how bad things really are. Yeah. Yeah. And then they still continue to kind of court this political controversy later that year in August 2000. They play uh, just across the street from the Staples Center during the Democratic National Convention. And same sort of thing. They end up, you know, playing their set. Everyone gets all riled up. You know, police are all, you know, concerned about like these protesters who are now all like angry and worked up. And so there's a little bit of, you know, protesting and violence that that ensues after that. And then interestingly enough, that 
shortly thereafter is the end of Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, so the band uh, was having some problems, you know, apparently from the beginning, the band had always had like, you know, a, a very tenuous relationship between all four members because each one of them wants to bring the band into a different direction and doing certain things. And they've been on the precipice of breaking up a lot over the years. And they finished the promotional tour for the Battle of Los Angeles and they go on a little break. And then, you know, after a few things, they did some more shows, they did some stuff, whatever. But yeah, eventually- the covers, the covers album. Yeah, and, yeah, eventually what happens is, is that uh, Zach De La Rocha releases a, a press release basically saying like, I'm done with the band. Like uh, we, we, we've reached an impasse where we can't really work together anymore. We're going to, you know, I'm going to go do my own thing. They're going to do their own thing. And that's kind of that. The band doesn't officially, I don't think officially ever like officially breaks up. I feel like they, they, they're still, they've never said like, we're broken up. It's more just like, they're not working together at the moment. Yeah. And I mean, they've, they have gotten together since and played shows and, you know, there's been all this speculation like will they like yeah. eventually you know put out been, a new album or anything but it's just been yeah just yeah they've, just they, they've never released any new music uh, you know a new original material from Rage Against Machine has not come out since since the Battle of Los Angeles in 1999 and then uh, the the three core members of Rage Against the Machine which is Tom Morello Tim Comerford and Brad Wilk they went on to form another band with the lead singer Chris Cornell called Audio Slave which is a whole nother episode which we'll probably do at some point in the future and then Zach De La Rocha he went out and he tried to do his own solo stuff but eventually he never really he never actually successfully releases a record uh there's some random tracks here and there he did some guest spots and other things but really he's kind of faded into obscurity he hasn't really done much of anything at all whereas the other members of the band have been you know the, the audio slave popularity and then they're in this other band called prophets of rage which is like you know kind of like a rage against the machine mix with other rappers and uh it it They've been really busy, whereas Zach is kind of not. So it leads me to believe that Zach is kind of like the one holding it back. He's the one kind of being like, you know, the most disillusioned with the group and kind of preventing the band from really getting together and doing more stuff. But uh, but yeah, the band is pretty much no more and they only released those three records and that's all that's pretty much been around. Yeah, so let's go back to the second record, Evil Empire, and talk about today's track, which is called Snake Charmer. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skipped on shuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. So we chatted a little bit about Tom Morello's background and uh, lead singer Zach De La Rocha also kind of has this interesting upbringing that sheds a lot of light on why Rage Against Machine is what it is and, and why they sing the songs they do. Zach's father is Robert De La Rocha, who was a painter and artist and muralist 
in the the Los Angeles area. He's a Mexican-American, and that's very much the themes of his art that he does. Um, He was very much in favor of of bringing back a lot of traditional Mexican celebrations, like such as Day of the Dead, something we, I think, kind of take for granted now. But from the way it makes it sound, like this was kind of not as popular or not as celebrated culturally as it is as much today. So that was one thing that he's kind of known for. His father and his mother separate when he's fairly young. So they divorce when he was um, six and he moves to Irvine and he does not speak very favorably of living in Irvine. He talks about how it's very racist, especially for someone of um, Mexican descent, um, where a lot of people are, you know, struggling in, you know, low wage jobs, especially as, um, you know, working on farms and 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 that sort of thing. So he he very much cites like that being, you know, the, those kind of like racist comments with his background. If you're, you know, Mexican, clearly you must only be, you know, a, a, a cleaner or, you know, someone working some kind of, you know, carpenter or some kind of some kind of menial job he, he is is how he describes it his grandfather his paternal grandfather is also an important influence because he fought in the mexican revolution and also worked as a laborer as well um on a farm those influences kind of seeing like that racist underbelly of america growing up and also his father and grandfather being these these very proud people proud of their heritage wanting to share their heritage with other people is kind of very much where you get the sense of why Zach is so vocal about so many things in in Rage Against Machines music. Earlier in the episode, we talked about how Evil Empire is kind of the outlier when you think of the three original studio albums that Rage Against the Machine put out. And Snake Charmer is also pretty uh, pretty much an outlier on its own. And uh, one of the main reasons is, is because it's actually a pretty personal song for for Zach, uh, there's there there's some there's some hints in the lyrics that that make you feel that the song is much more about Zach's own personal something that happened or something that he thought about with his own personal life. Whereas most of the songs on the first record and the third record and interspersed in Evil Empire as well, but the the vast majority of Rage Against the Machine songs tend to be more just about the state of capitalism, America, politics, politicians, war, very like huge problems that, you know, are affecting all members of, of, of the world, basically. So it's very rare that you hear a song from Rage Against the Machine where it's a much more personal thing about Zach's own, you know, life. And, uh, and that's kind of what Snake Charmer does. And so that makes it an outlier song on an outlier record, which, which makes it perfect for Skipped on Shuffle. And it's kind of strange to think that that like, you know, a, a personal song from, you know, written from the heart of the lead vocalist of a band would be one of the least popular songs from, from the band. Like you'd think like the more personal you get, the, the more, 
the more connection that people would have with that with that with that song. But but really, it, interestingly enough, this song is pretty low on the charts when it comes to Rage Against the Machine's music. And so it's like I don't know, maybe it's because it's it is personal. It kind of stands out too much, and people kind of gravitate away from it or whatever. But really, like Snake Charmer has like you know, it's got that intensity, it's got that anger, it's got that loudness, it's got that that pacing that just makes a you know that groove and it, it, it is a Rage Against the Machine song at the core for sure but at the same time it's a little different because things are just getting a little bit more personal than maybe you would expect from a Rage Against the Machine song. So in just thinking about the more personal nature of Evil Empire, I think it's also worth kind of uh, uh, bringing up a couple of the other songs that are on this record that kind of hint towards that this is more of Zach's point of view and songs about him or his outlook. So there was uh, another single, uh, People of the Sun. wrote that song after a visit to Mexico. So again, getting in touch with kind of his history, his heritage. There's also another single off this album called Down Rodeo, which I think kind of hints at not only wealth inequality, um, just because it's a very like rich area, but it also has the line. So now I'm rolling down Rodeo with a shotgun. These people ain't seen a brown skinned man since their grandparents bought one. So, (laughs) so pretty, yeah, pretty, I mean, pretty heavy, pretty blatant, like, drawing a a very sharp line of distinction between you know here's here's how these people you know see me and here's what they think of you know mexicans or brown-skinned people or or whoever you might be that is different from you so i think that's very much carried into to snake charmer as well scott and i were were kind of sorting through the lyrics a little bit there's still you know some of what you'd expect in a rage against machine song you know mentioning greed and, and that kind of thing but there's also a lot that seems to be zach kind Kind of describing what might be the the kind of outlook of America that he gets from um, his father, like what his father might be trying to tell him, or at least the impression that he seems to get from from conversations that he he may have had with his father being kind of an an artist. I don't know if it's, you know, conversations that specifically took place or maybe just the impression that he gets from, you know, his father's art and interpretations of, you know, his personal interpretations of what, you know, that art is trying to tell him. Early in the song, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty awesome, fast, punky sounding like breakdown part where basically he just says, yeah, a whole bunch of times. But hidden in the background is him saying very quietly, 26 years in this stage, you're 26 years in this stage. When the song was written or around when it was written, he Zach was around 26 years old, which once again brings us back to the idea that he's definitely writing this about himself. Uh, here, we're going to play this clip right now. See if you can hear it. It's it's kind of it's kind of in, indistinct in the background, but listen for him hearing 26 years. Later on in the song, he mentions this line, father's expectations, soul soaked in, spit in urine, and you got to make it where to a sanctuary that's a fragile American hell. 
So obviously the word father is there. So that, you know, once again, brings us back to the idea that he's writing this either about his father or about his father's outlook, or possibly, I think the, the, the best explanation is, is that this is his interpretation of his father passing on his own viewpoints. You know, there's that whole thing of, you know, the idea that like, you know, you know, uh, children are, are, are products of their parents, you know, and it's like, Zach is kind of saying like, I got this from my dad. Like the reason I'm so angry, the reason that I have these outlooks is because of my dad. And, you know, I don't think the song comes down either like with a positive or negative of whether that's a good thing or bad thing that he's taking this information from his father. But I think basically that's kind of what the song is about. It's kind of like, you know, I'm taking this from my dad and then, you know, continuing on with his own, you know, with his train of thought through these kinds of things. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too, getting on, getting on that worldview is a lot of like, you're going to have to like put up with some shit and you're going to have to like be a hard worker if, if you want to like make a name for yourself. Cause he says, uh, there, there's a, a, another couple of lines in here. Have no illusions, boy, vomit all ideals and serve sleep and wake and serve and don't just wake and serve. So it seems to be kind of saying here, like, don't just get into this routine of being, you know, this, this downtrodden, you know, person, you're, you're, you're going to have these, you know, pressures on you and it's going to be tough for you to make it in this country, you know, regardless of, you know, ethnicity or, or anything else, you know, and, and that's a very much a, a Rage Against the Machine theme is, you know, this oppression from, you know, wealthy, wealthy companies, wealthy class of people, you know, exploiting you, exploiting your labor. And and that's very much a line that tells you, like, be aware of this and you're going to have to, you know, work hard and don't be quiet and silent about it. And that's pretty much like the, the Rage Against the Machine ethos is kind of just like, you know, standing up somewhere and, you know, shouting like, here's here's what's really going on. And and these are things that aren't right. And I want to bring attention to them. And and if we all band together, we can do something to, to change this and improve all of our lives and all of our circumstances. So I think it's interesting that, you know, there's there's a line passed on like the deadliest of viruses crushing you in your naive profession. This is this is Zach is an artist like his father is. So I think that's kind of uh, uh, an allusion to that and, you know, naive profession of being an artist and just the struggle of, you know, trying to change the world when when you're an artist and you're not in necessarily like a place of power. So that's that's I mean, I love this song. I love this album. I love this band, but I love this song in particular. And, and, And that's what makes it so interesting to me, because like, you know, like a song like Killing in the Name has like, I think, like 17 words to it like i mean it's literally just you know killing in the name of fuck you i won't do what you tell me like it's 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 very straightforward and simple like anger you know you know one one gets the idea that killing in the name is about like a a, a soldier going to war because he's been drafted and the general coming being, up being to told, him, being told to, yeah, like, this is shoving what you're doing. A, yeah. A, a rifle in his hand and going and saying go and kill the enemy and then the guy throwing the gun down and saying fuck you i won't do what you tell me you know that's basically what Killing in the Name of is. Very simple, very straightforward. And from the time that they wrote this first record and then the time that they released the second record, Evil Empire, you know, Zach is clearly getting much more confident about writing lyrics and 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 getting across what he wants to say in both direct and poetic ways. And I feel like this song is mostly poetic. Like it's mm. obviously it's an angry punk. I mean, if you just popped it on, you know, you'd just be like, whatever, he's just yelling because he's angry and it's a Rage Against the Machine song. But when you really break it down and listen to it, you realize this is a very personal track about a guy who's 
who's like had a really, you know, a rough time with his with 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 understanding and and appreciating his own heritage in a country and in a world that that thinks he's dog shit, you know, like it thinks his 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 culture, his history, his entire race of people is just like not, you know, not as good as some others. And uh, and so when you when you when you strip away the the grandiose political grandstanding of what Rage Against the Machine is, which is important and and, part, and a major part of the band. But when you strip that away and you realize that it's literally this this man in the front of the band who's who's fairly fragile. You know, he's like, he's like, I am very, very upset about this. And, and this isn't, and this band is an outlet for me to get that out. And so, you know, I feel like in a band that's so intense and so angry and so just huge sounding as Rage Against the Machine, it's kind of hard to find the heart, you know? And I feel like this song kind of finds that through him being like making his own personal connection. And I think it's unfortunate that we're, you know, we're now, you know, what, uh, well over 10 years, 20 years, 20, 20 yeah. years. God, <laughs> twenty years away from their their the, from the release of their of their third and final album, and it's material. still as relevant. And yeah. it's still as relevant. And 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 I, I wish that the band had stayed together longer, not because I want more music just in general, but because I want them to be more like this. Like I wish they could get more personal because now, you know, Zach's probably, I don't know, I'm probably in his forties, maybe even approaching 50 now. I, I, we didn't look up the ages or anything. Well, 20, well, we've 26 20 years. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah like he's probably late, 46, late 40s. Yeah. Approaching yeah. 50, you know, so imagine what somebody who's approaching 50 with Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Imagine what that person could write. Imagine what that person could say and do with the music that they'd be creating. It would just be so awesome. And, and, you know, so part of me really wants that and it's really unfortunate because a song like Snake Charmer kind of you know points to the direction that that kind of could have gone in but then the other part of me is like no like Rage Against the Machine is perfect it's pure it's perfect it was it existed in a certain time it was this flashpoint yeah that just, you know. and and if they tried to come back to it it would just it, you know it would be like a bunch of old guys screaming and trying to capture their youth and, and all that. It's, you know, like the sex pistols reuniting or whatever. Or, or like, Iggy pop. When yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. You know, you're like, it's kind of cool, but this is weird. <laughs> yeah. It's a little weird. Like this was, this existed in a time and it's over and we got to move on from that and whatever. So, you know, I'm, I'm like split. I'm like, ah, oh, like I really wish every time I listen to this song and this album and, 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 and hearing these, these, these lyrics, I'm always thinking, ah, oh, man, I wish I had more of this, but you know, at the same time, like, I'm kind of glad we don't have more of this. <laughs> <laughs> So when I put this album on and and hear this song and and um, I'm immediately taken back to stopping at a, a, a record store with my dad in in Westerly, Rhode Island that had wow, a bunch this of is like that, that, I, I am specific. Yeah, <laughs> that's how momentous this occasion was. Um, and and it was a, a cool CD shop that had like bootleg stuff back when you were you know looking for concerts you know yeah, on, yeah. on CD and stuff. And uh, I remember looking through the used CD section and they had this album and I, I didn't have any Rage Against the Machine that I owned and my dad let me pick it up. 
and he just said you know don't ever tell your mother like <laughs> that i let you buy this thing I like, and, I like, and just keep it keep it out of sight and and i love and how you say uh, he, he let me he you know he <laughs> let me pick it up it's like a pornographic magazine or something or a pack of cigarettes it's like it's just music you know? yeah it's funny to think about like how 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 laid back or or at least in my experience like not that my parents were like super strict but how much more laid back about everything they are as as i got older not that my mom likes to listen to Rage Against the Machine now, because she still does not. <laughs> um, I, I put a bunch. I put a bunch of music. I, I well, there was one Christmas where I got her an iPod and threw a bunch of her music on it, and and just for kicks, I threw Rage Against the Machine on there. So <laughs> so when it's on shuffle every once in a while, a Rage Against the Machine song will come on. Um, but but no, I, I I think of that, and and I just think about how cool it used to be when you were like, oh, I got this thing that's like, you know, we, we mentioned how this band was like a dangerous band. Yeah. And 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 it really, at least as far as like parents and and old people were concerned like it did kind of you know that message kind of resonated that like oh i don't know if this is a band that you want you know your your youngsters listening to so i i think that also when i listen and especially like listening back more closely now having done this episode and it seems weird to put it in the same context and we had done a skipped on shuffle on marvin gay and talked a little bit about what's going on where that album is still like super relevant and resonates just as well today and i and i think of that immediately with most of rage Against machine and evil empire in particular as 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 you were talking about earlier with just you know the 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 state of america and and you know how how prominently our struggle with racism has like come come to bear um especially recently you know you put on this album and you just think about like what they're what they're saying and what they're um pointing out and you're just like wow has anything changed in you know 20 <laughs> something years and so i think a little bit about that which you know no no one would think like oh what's going on in evil empire those are <laughs> those are the those are the two albums that are always like you know relevant but I, I i really think that's the case with this record and you know it's kind of impressive to make a record that is simultaneously so personal but even though you know i i know nothing about you know the 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 life that Zach went through or, or some of the things he struggles with, you know, I can at least empathize and, and, and get some idea of um, the kind of struggles and, and things that people go through. So it, it's weird to have an, an emotion other than rage when you listen to rage <laughs> against the machine, but no, I, I, I like really like sympathize and it's really kind of interesting to, um, to listen to this album and realize like, Oh, people go through this all the time. Like, uh, you know, struggling to, to make it and when people look at you they immediately you know assume this this and this about you and and you just you know have to 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 fight against that you know those those kind of stereotypes i i don't remember the very specific time that uh i first heard rage against the machine but i i i do remember i first heard killing in the name on the radio that was that was my first introduction to them and and my dad was uh, we were we were in the car together and uh, came on and he was like, what is this? And not in like a, not in like a turn it off, but in like a really like, what is like, this is incredible. Like what, you know, where did this band come from? And you know, it was, it was a, it was a big moment for, for me and for him because we were just like, wow, like this band's crazy. I, we got to figure this out. So yeah. So I was introduced to Rage Against the Machine through the first record and that song. And, and I was really into them and I, you know, I, I really liked how dangerous it was. You know, that, that word keeps coming back up, that danger and, uh, and that immediacy of what they were doing. Yeah. And then, and then I got evil empire and, and all their records. I, 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 you know, 
Raging Against Machine, when they were ex- in existence, I bought everything. The day it came out, it was in my hands because you know they were just they were just so so cool. But I think what I kind of remember, or not remember, but what I think about when I when I listen to Rage Against the Machine is how, and you kind of touched on this too, is how how distanced I am from it. You know, like I was raised in Connecticut. I'm white. You know, I I was raised in a fairly wealthy town. But at the same time, I am distanced from it. But I'm also a little more connected to it than maybe people would assume looking at me, you know, because I was raised in, in a very small town in Connecticut on the shoreline. That's, that's fairly wealthy. There's, there's very little minority representation in the town. And, um, and I was not like poor, like, but for the town, I was poor, you know, like our family was, was, I would, I would say in, in our area, we were poor. If you were to put us in like, I don't know, somewhere else that wasn't Connecticut, we might be lower middle class or maybe even just like straight up middle class. But in, in it, it was impossible not to feel poor in my town growing up. And, uh, you know, I'd go to school and there would be people that would get there and for their sweet 16, you know, they got a new Volkswagen Jetta or whatever, and, you know, and then, you know, the guys are like, oh, we're going on our, on our, on our spring break and we're going to, you know, the, wherever they were going to Mardi Gras or I don't know, like they would, they would be taking trips and doing all these rich people things, you know? And then I would just be like, Oh, I'm just sitting at home playing my guitar or, you know, watching movies or, you know, just like, you know, living my life is like what I would assume would be a normal teenage, teenage boy living in America. But I felt it. I felt that distance between me and, you know, the, the upper class people that I, that I was surrounded with at all times. So in a way, even though I'm not a minority and I, and like you said, I have no idea what it's like going through life living, you know, as a minority in America, which has got to be, you know, so rough and so horrible. Uh, especially like we said, like growing up with in Irvine, California with Sector La Rocha's family and, and how he felt like he was just like constantly being stereotyped everywhere he went. I, I can't understand that, but I can understand the idea of like being a feeling like, you are surrounded by haves and you are a have not, you know, I, I understand that. And in a way, Rage Against the Machine kind of became an outlet for me in that, in that capacity. So I, I, I feel this, this personal connection to Rage's music because of that. And I feel like, you know, in a way it kind of shaped who I am, you know, like I definitely ascribe to a lot of the politics of Rage Against the Machine. I'm definitely angry about capitalism, I'm angry about injustice. I'm angry about uh, racial inequality throughout America. All those things I, I, I got from Rage Against the Machine. And I feel like I also got it, you know, it, I also got it from living my life, you know, growing up where I did. And I feel like that shaped who I am. So it's like, as much as I hated it and as much as I wished I didn't have to go through with, with growing up in this, in this kind of environment, it does, it did create, I feel like a pretty well-rounded person who can identify with people who, you know, are going through things that are, that are tough and, and, and going through things that I didn't have to go through. Whereas if I, if I grew up in the same town that I did grow up in, but I grew up, you know, fairly wealthy, I might not be that way. I might be one of these people that Zach DeLaRocha spits on when he, you know, when he, when he, you know, plays this music. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm glad that I had Rage Against the Machine growing up. And it, I, I hope that this band can, can give those same things to, to, to the younger generations that are coming up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Be sure to visit our webpage at skippedonshuffle.com where we have a blog and links to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also a YouTube page where we perform the songs that we discuss in these episodes. 
We are trying our best to keep Skipped on Shuffle a ad-free podcast. So if you are interested in helping to support that, please visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash skipped on shuffle. Uh, any donations that come there could go straight to keeping uh, Skipped on Shuffle a ad-free experience and go straight to paying for the various costs that are associated with running this podcast.